Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Francois Ortello Meunier has served in academic leadership roles for over 20 years. After first serving as a department chair at the University of Wisconsin at Madison's Business School, he went on to serve as its dean from 2011 to 2017. In August of that year, he joined the London Business School as its ninth dean. In contrast to the vast majority of business schools worldwide, There is no larger architecture that London Business School reports to or receives support from financially or otherwise. As such, the span of issues often absorbed at the larger university level are instead all a part of Francois's responsibility. And that span of issues is broad. In this podcast, Francois shares with us the implications of this structural setup. He also compares and contrasts his experience of being a dean in Europe without of leading a major business school in the United States. While the distinctions are many, it's hard not to notice the many similarities we all seem to face as deans leading complex academic enterprises. Welcome, Dean Francois, also known by his more formal name, Francois Ortalo Magnet. Great to have you here today. Uh, we've been looking forward to this conversation with you. This is a uh, interesting time in the history of the world, and you bring a very interesting perspective to the role of of deaning. You know, uh, uniquely, someone who has spent six years as a dean at the University of Wisconsin before London Business School, where you also have been six years. We're sort of curious and opening just to hear your thoughts on the major differences, contrasts, comparisons from where you've been to where you are. Well, great to be with you, Ken and and, and Dave. (laughs) Great way to start the conversation. So many differences, but um, maybe if I were to pick one, I have the same title now that I had in the U.S., (laughs) but actually here is a complete misnomer. Because he, he really here, if you want to understand my job, you have to understand that I am the chief executive officer of a not-for-profit organization. And that's very different than being dean in a U.S. university where there's a whole infrastructure around you where also you don't have full control or full power and full responsibility over your operations. So that, that's probably the biggest shift is I move from being dean within a university to being so-called dean and chief executive officer of a not-for-profit organization. There's no one behind me. So when you think, Francois, about the people who reported to you back in Madison versus the types of people who report to you today, give us a taste of some of these uh, unusual tasks that you never had to deal with before, but you're now having to deal with uh, today. What types of uh, responsibilities do you now have to deal with? Yes, in terms of the the breadth of what I oversee, clearly in the U.S., I never worried about uh, the estates, the maintenance uh, with regard to IT, cybersecurity, you know, the number of very limited responsibilities. Uh, Even if you think about the function that I oversaw, 
like HR function, uh, finance functions. I was always within an environment that was driven by uh, someone else. So they were the element that the university ran. And then even what I ran officially, it was within. Uh, the brand and marketing of the business school was within the framework of the brand of the campus. Uh, the PR communication was within their framework. So there wasn't that much really in the US environment where you have total independence and total responsibility. What kind of things did you have to do to figure out who your constituents were from one institution to the next? And how have you prioritized constituent leadership, constituent management? So the the first priority I, I gave myself, it was a public priority. You could have observed me making this a priority. That one, it would have been the same one in the U.S., as, as at uh, London Business School is I read two papers for every one of our faculty members. And uh, I met with every tenured faculty member one-on-one and I met with the assistant professors in uh, small groups. So to give you a sense of the scale, it's we have about 105 uh, tenure, tenure track uh, faculty members. And um, that was so helpful. And, for, and I love reading other people's research and trying to understand the connections. So it was helpful in understanding them. It was helpful in, in uh, signaling my interest and manifesting my interest for their research. And uh, an unexpected benefit is I was able to notice connections among our researchers that even our researchers were not aware of. Uh, so, for example, when I did that, at that time, there were 18 researchers who had published 46 papers uh, about diversity, inclusion, belonging. And there was more than at least one in every subject area. And while people knew that there was some interest around the school, no one had realized that, oh my gosh, this is such a big deal for for our researchers. So that was, I would say, an observable priority. If you had followed me during the day or evenings and weekends, you would have noticed that I spent a lot of time understanding our, our data and in particular our finances. And that, I don't know how it will have been in the U.S., but that's, that's part of being the CEO, right? There's, no one else is accountable to the board about our finances. And, and there is not a vice chancellor for administration, for example, any services to onboard me and, and give me a framework. And, and so I spent quite a bit of time understanding. And then from there, understanding what are the, the, the key financial indicators that are going to matter to me that I want to follow. And how is it that, for example... I quickly shifted the way we we report our finances because I wanted to have a report that makes sense to me from a strategic perspective, right? So so you will have noticed that if you followed me uh, around. And that, I think, would have been different in the U.S. because in the U.S., hopefully, I would have been within an existing framework and the university that that already is on top of that. And at the same time, in the U.S., probably, I don't know if I would have had the freedom to myself redesign how is it that we want to report our finances to our governors like I do here. Francois, you just mentioned a moment ago uh, your board. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with your board? I'm presuming they have a fiduciary role and they're not just an advisory body to you. Are they the ones who, for example, hire or fire you? Uh, are they assessing your performance periodically? And And if this is the case, how does faculty governance interact or interface with your duty that uh, you would have to the board? 
So let's start with the board, Dave, because this is you put you, you open a big can of warm. So great question, but let's take it one at a time. So let's start with the, the board. Absolutely, thank you. That's a big difference. Is uh, in the U.S. context, uh, I had an advisory board. These were people who were there to sit uh, with me. Uh, I picked them. Uh, they all volunteers, all committed to the school, and here to help us advance and uh, sharpen our, our plans and advance our mission, live up to our vision. Uh, here in London, the board is is the so it's called the governing body. It is a fiduciary board. And yes, I am their CEO. So they are the ones who hire me and the ones who can fire me and the ones to whom I report, who do manual evaluation. Uh, absolutely. That's exactly like being the CEO of any other uh, not-for-profit uh, organization. Uh, on this board, I, I do have a number of external members who are picked the usual way by a nomination governance uh, uh, committee. And then I have three uh, faculty members elected by the faculty, one staff member elected by the staff, the student association president elected by the students, and then the president of the alumni council, who, who is elected by the alumni council, who themselves are designated, referred um, by, by the alumni uh, of all. So, so it is a broad and uh, diverse uh, board. And, and yes, um, I present to them every year my budget and my plan for the year ahead and the years ahead. And uh, every July, I better get my plan and budget approved for the next year. And that's very different than the U.S. environment. How much time do you devote to managing uh, and thinking about your board? I presume it's much more demanding compared to when you were uh, at Madison. A, a lot more. At the same time, in Madison, I spend time with my provost, my different vice chancellors and chancellor. And so, so in the end, I'd, if you add that up, uh, then I don't know that it is uh, so uh, different. Also, because here I have what in England we call a school secretary, uh, who is someone who also has a, has a direct reporting line to the board and the chairman and a reporting line to me, but who helps me manage uh, the relationship with the board. Um, clearly, the pandemic created a lot more involvement opportunities uh, uh, for the board. So what I would say maybe, so in, in terms of quantity of time, I don't know how to answer, but what I can answer is that it's a lot more structured uh, because it's, it's a formal uh, board who, with members who are members of other formal boards. So to give you a sense, uh, it just stepped down as it happens uh, at the end of, uh, stepping down at the end of the month. But the chairman of my finance committee uh, was the chairman of the board for the Bank of England. Yeah. Uh, my deputy chairman is also on the board of Philips. The chair of my audit and risk committee is also at audit and risk at HSBC. And so, so it's the same type of interaction. So it is formal, it is structured, but in a way that I find so helpful. To give you another uh, window into this, for example, we do have external auditors and internal auditors and they provide their formal reports to the Audit and Risk Committee. And I am formally accountable for the progress. So first of all, did they find things that didn't work? And then when they did, did we progress the thing that, that they identified? Right. So I don't know so much about the time, but it's much more structured and very helpful. So that's very interesting. Talk some about the board's uh, relationship with you relative to 
mobilizing vision, whether it's uh, resources, constraints, challenges, sort of how does that come to play? Okay, so the, maybe the, the first element to say, and my deputy chairman was saying last night actually, is that they are a fiduciary board first and foremost. And as long as management, we do a, our job properly, and the information flow to them is, is appropriate, then the fiduciary dimension of their job is actually not so time consuming. I mean, and by the way, they do read the papers, right? I mean, this is, you know, it, we, and we could be sending 500 pages. They read them and they comment. And, but, you know, last night uh, was a formal meeting where we approved the financial statements for last year. And that approval took uh, five minutes. Why? Because the work was done, the auditors came through and, and so. And what, what actually the deputy chairman was saying last night is how we appreciate that management is doing such a great job that then we have time to engage in how is it that we can be helpful as board members. So that, that's the first thing to, to say. And then how are they helpful? Well, there's a very heterogeneous group of people and your listener might want to go on our website to get a sense of that heterogeneity. But different board members will have a different uh, expertise, perspective, connections, and then they will help out. So, so to give you concrete examples, um, there was a, a moment where we had to solve some complex rearrangement of some pension scheme that we have here at the school. A good example of something in the US I never worried about as a, as a dean. But there's someone who is on the committee, the audit and risk committee, who is a pension expert. And he's, you know, was there to help. When, you know, in July 2020, so the tough time in the pandemic, uh, I went to the governors and I said, look, I want to create a space for the school to, to be able to innovate and to breathe and to, to explore, create, scale the ideas that will define our future and not be so focused on the immediate. Yeah. And then a number of them got together and they gave us four and a half million pounds. Just go, go and go and do what you think is best because yes, the institution we agree needs to, to just get out of the urgent on a, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we just launched a fundraising campaign. It's one of our board members said, I'll be the chair. And, and, and he's been with me uh, at the uh, launch event. So you see what I mean? It's like, and, and we do think about that when we constitute the board. I mean, we clearly have to fill positions in the nomination governance committee, remuneration committee, audit and risk and finance where you need expertise. But then we also think about the different, uh, supportive expertise that, that we need. And our job as management is great job with the fiduciary aspect of it. So we don't spend too much time approving the financial statements or this or that regulatory report. And we can really engage with them about, so how is it that we help progress the organization? Francois, you touched on philanthropy just a moment ago. Compare and contrast just a little bit uh, the approach you feel you need to take in the UK versus the model you pursued in the US. I was under the impression, uh, perhaps it's outdated uh, a bit, but that philanthropy in Europe is a little bit of an uphill struggle. It's a good question, and and it, it's easy to look at it as an uphill struggle. Uh, for example, uh, our campaign that we just launched, I think, is ambitious at two hundred million pounds. You know, Wharton's campaign was one billion. But then, then let's let's think about exactly the the relevant uh, information here. Uh, first of all, LBS, like many of the schools, we're very young. 
and very small. You know, our first class was in 1968. And there were 40 students. I know that in 1993, with the alumni who graduated in that year, we had just about 1,500 alumni total. Total. Yeah. 60% uh, of our current alums uh, graduated after the year 2000. Yeah. So it's very small. It's very young. In total, we have about 50,000 alums. So it's very young and very small. Second, and that's something that might be interesting to deans in the US who grumble about all the money going to the sports teams. <laughs> you know, at, at the university like Wisconsin, there's a lot of money that goes to the sports team because it's one of those schools that's good, that wants to be good. And that is pretty good at, at all the sports, right? Football and basketball and hockey. And then you can even add more sports like volleyball and whatever. Yeah. But here is the thing I've learned coming into the, into the UK is that these sports teams, they make you relevant to your alumni population on a weekly basis, right? On a weekly basis, there's some warm glow being cultivated between your university and your alumni population. There's stuff to celebrate. There's stuff to engage emotionally. And I must admit, I underestimated the power of that. When I was in the US, I was maybe a bit more focused on the fact that there were all these business alum who were giving all this money to the athletic departments. Like, could we get a bit more in the business school? But I underestimate the power of having that regular flow of university engagement that maintained us close together, right? There are badger bars in every major US city that keeps getting the people together. So that I underestimated. The translation of that is, and plus we are only a graduate program, right? That warm glow loyalty to my alma mater, it's, it's not something that, that really emerges as much and gets cultivated by someone else, like the football team. What I find really interesting, however, is if you think about fundraising not so much as a, as a sales proposition, you know, here is a scholarship, for that amount of money, you get that type of a student, you get an annual thank you letter and we'll invite you to a dinner. And if you give more money, you'll get more scholars and the dinner is with the dean or whatever. Yeah. You have to shift from that sales perspective to an opportunity that, that is an imperative here, which is available in the US as an opportunity, is to much more of an impact investing mindset. It's like we have a strategy, we have a plan, and we want everyone to play their part because we want to move fast. Will you invest? An investment in the school is an investment in you and our future together. Here are the KPIs that will demonstrate that we are delivering for your investment. Right? And that I know from experience is a strategy that is available uh, in the US and that is more likely to help with you know, the people who are giving in the hundreds, giving in the thousands, and in the thousands, in the ten thousand, and maybe inspire people giving up to a million. And for us, within the young community we have of very successful business leaders, I believe in that approach as as an imperative. And and I'm seeing really good results that are very encouraging of people stepping up and saying, "Yes, I have long-term equity in this school, and that's where I'm going to invest." And that is particularly helpful here because we are an we are a school on our own right and so so in london i can really make this case uh in the us to truthfully make this case uh, i would have wanted a chancellor with a certain degree of explicit commitment 
about leaving the money at the business school and not increasing the tax rate on the business school when the business school increase its uh, income. Take the concept of impact investing and extend it to uh, the impact to do good in society. And, you know, we've known you as a big thinker, as a very creative, um, big issues person. And of course, impact has become increasingly important in uh, management education uh, in general. Uh, I mean, this last week, there was a front page of the business section article in the New York Times, really uh, sort of elaborating on everything from ESG to social justice to DEI. Talk about your vision for impact to do good and sort of what how it plays out in your role at uh, LBS. So let, let me start with a, a very concrete example that, that gives you a, a sense of potentially difference US-UK Although I believe within the U.S. there is heterogeneity that might be of interest to, to, to different American deans. But there is a, a foundation called the Laidlaw Foundation, set up by uh, Irvine Laidlaw, because he wants to break the glass ceiling and enable more women to reach positions of leadership. And, and for a while, he'd been giving uh, scholarships in the U.S. But the way the process was working in the U.S., he realized that the women getting his scholarships there were women who were already in the pool of applicants to business school, and these scholarships were being used primarily to help affect which business school they go to. I said, well, that, that's not the impact I want to have. The impact I want to have is give women access to world-class business education to help promote more women against that glass ceiling and break it. And so, so actually, as it happens, one of the schools where he was giving this donation, uh, the dean was very nice to us saying, you know, uh, at LBS, they are independent and they might have more power to actually affect change the way you want to. But go and talk to them. And, and he came to us and we listened to him and we said, look, we are interested because we too, you know, I mentioned earlier, so many researchers doing research on diversity, inclusion, and belonging said, you know, we, we want to help break that glass ceiling. And the agreement we came up with is that for three years, he was going to give us 1.23 million pounds to give scholarships to 20 women. You can do the math, it's a lot uh, per women. But only three years because he said, every year I'm going to come and I want to hear the stories of each of these women. And I want to know, did my scholarship enable them to do world-class business education? Without it, they wouldn't even dream about it. And we passed the test with flying colors. It's one of my most enjoyable meetings every year. And I've done three. I sit with him in the COV's foundation and some colleagues. We have the 20 women around the table and each tell their stories. You know, and women from Zimbabwe, when she was young, there was, not, there was not enough money for basic necessities. But somehow she, her parents were so committed to uh, education that she was a star pupil. Somehow one of our alums heard about the story, helped her apply. And two other alums said, we're going to pay for it. And now she's on an internship program with Morgan Stanley or mentorship program with Morgan Stanley to get into a career for impact investing. And that, you see, actually interesting enough, it's not an alum, but this is Donald who comes to us and, and say, hey, maybe you guys can actually help me achieve my objective. That's where, by the way, there's no excuse. I'm the CEO. <laughs> and so, so if we say yes, 
well then let's do it, <laughs> right? Uh, but at the same time, I'm the CEO. When he shows up once a year, it's like, Francois, did you deliver, right? And, and as it happens, we hired someone to identify these women. By now we have established great partnerships around the world to have a pipeline. And I guarantee you that we find every year 20 women uh, and more who never dream about world-class business education. And if I were not dean, the job I want is a job of the colleague who makes a call to say, have you thought about an MBA at LBS? And say, are you kidding me? We say, actually, we'll pay for it. Uh, or not us, but the Late Law Foundation. So that's that's one element of impact uh, uh, right there, right? That's like one life at a time. I'll give you another element of impact, which is so many more lives at once, is we've decided to position ourselves in Exacad as, as a, the, the prime partner for ambitious organizations on a transformation journey. Because that's something that's very important to understand about my job here as well is I don't have an endowment. I don't have an undergraduate program. I don't have a university. I don't have a big government behind me. And I'm sorry, I say yes, I say I, because I take very personally the responsibility of getting money on the table to make payroll every month. Now, we don't go month to month, but there is no one else funding us. And so what's the secret to deliver world-class graduate business education is we do a lot of execute. And, and when you do execute, you got to perform because if you don't deliver impact, the clients don't come back, right? So actually, that, that has a big impact, I believe, on our culture as it happens. Our faculty better be good, not just at doing research, but being able to have impact. And, and so there we have organizations where we touch the whole organization, like 10,000 people. In, in helping transform those organizations by becoming more consumer-centric, more data-oriented, more diversified, you name it. But that's not the way in which we have impact. And, and there, there's a big commercial driver because, you know, HSBC, Nestle, Danone, you know, Microsoft, Rolls-Royce, they don't come here <laughs> if we don't have impact. I mean, <laughs> these are commercial decisions. We don't have a monopoly. And, and it's very competitive. And we find the same world-class business school against us competing and and we win and sometimes we lose. But but that, you see what I mean? Impact right there. And then the third place I would say is that like many business school, we have alumni and donors who are very generous. Uh, I'll give you a concrete example. We'll, we'll support the impact initiative. So concrete example is a faculty member does a lot of research on predictive modeling. If you read his papers, you'll guess that he's saved hundreds of millions to Dell, Zara and Amazon. Someone from the World Bank heard about that. And long story short, he got our colleagues to design a data collection system and predictive model that is now saving lives in Zambia because he improved the supply chain for malaria drugs. What an amazing story. Yeah, and so, so because the thing with malaria, I'm not a specialist, but what I understand is what's important is you take the drug when you need it. And so if you're able to predict when the drug is needed, even if it takes time to get it there, and by the way, it's important because typically you need it when it rains a lot. And when it rains a lot, it's difficult to get a drug there. So you can have a predictive model of when the drug is needed. You can ship it in advance. And then you save lives because people have the drug when they need it. And so that's a, that will be a third story of impact. What, what great stories and, uh, and how rewarding that has to make you feel. I have just uh, one final question I wanted to ask. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground uh, today, but if you were to point at just a few kernels of advice uh, that you've picked up in your years uh, 
at London Business School and, and leading in the UK. What might those one or two uh, kernels of wisdom be for the rest of us? Um, let me go back to something we started with is being clear about whom do you serve. And I would say it's important as, as an institution and as yourself, whom do you serve? Because there's going to be a moment, you know, dean, CEO, not CEO, it doesn't matter. There's going to be a moment where there are some really tough decisions that you have to make. And at least, at least my experience is if I can go back to some deep principles like that, then at least I can sleep uh, with my decision, right? Because I know where it came from. There's another element that, you know, all of us in those positions, I think it's true for every dean, there's a big dimension of why we do this job. It's for altruistic uh, motives. And we are the kind of people who enjoy creating a platform for others to thrive, right? That like we'll give up our own teaching, our own research because we get some enjoyment at others doing it. And maybe that's the way in which we have uh, more impact. But I, I think it's important to also be really clear about what's my selfish motive in here? What is it that, 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 that I'm after? That, that, what is it in there that that's for me? Right? Because again, there are times when, when it's important to know. And by the way, there are also times when you want to celebrate uh, uh, with the others. So maybe the third thing I would say is that at the same time, it's important to understand what's needed for you and that there's so many things that it's only about you because it's only about you taking your full responsibility. The fact is, it's also never about you. And that job is about navigating that, that contrast, right? That, that in the end, I think it's true at every levels of leadership, right? You want to be effective. You got to take full responsibility. It's about you and your decisions and your actions. And at the same time, this is interesting tension is that you're part of a bigger story. It's not your story. Right? And, and how do you navigate that? And I think spending time to ponder this uh, certainly has served me really well. What, what, what great advice. So we've made today's conversation about you and you've made it much bigger than just about you. It's a, it's a, it's a big conversation. We really appreciate it, Francois. We'll have to have you back to have another conversation about one of maybe 12 different topics that we could explore here. Uh -huh. But in the meantime, this is a wonderful conversation. We really are, appreciate your uh, involvement in this discussion. Well, thank you very much. A pleasure for me too. What an impressive conversation that was, Ken. Yeah, really fascinating. You know, we really could have taken any one of a dozen topics. He's so, so thoughtful, so uh, experienced across, you know, multi-dimensional kinds of um, institutions. So, you know, and it's compressed into a dozen or so leadership years, uh, really a lifetime of experience. Very, very informative. And he thinks so inclusively. Right. I, I was taken aback by several threads in our conversation. For example, you know, towards the end of our conversation, he talked about his role as being, in, I think he used the word, you know, he was enabling others to thrive. And, and that, 
that's almost the epitome of being yeah. servant leader. I always used to liken it to being the coach. You, you really need to be open to being off of the playing field, not scoring the points, um, but actually on the sidelines where you are getting your uh, emotional gratification by helping others succeed. And it's, it's such a it's such a key, if you, if you can bring that perspective to your job, personally, I think you can I was also impressed when he talked about this notion of, uh, when, with respect to philanthropy, this notion of investment. That that he was he was uh, approaching his donor population with this notion of um, join us as an investor in this organization. He even used the phrase uh, KPIs or, or key performance indicators. What he was what I took away from that was he's saying, "Hey, we need to deliver results," and I, I found that such an effective way to to, to raise money. Yeah, I used to I used to joke and still do that there are very few donors left in the United States. Almost all of them are investors. And we train them to think that way. And if you if you bring that mindset to the uh, to your philanthropic efforts, it's uh, it can be a very effective tool. What were some of the other things you saw? Well, you know, it's interesting. I I thought that one of his really um, interesting uh, angles in is was it the very practical solutions to complex problems. So for instance, you know, one complex problem might've been becoming embraced by his faculty. Now the idea that he read two papers for 105 tenured uh, track faculty and maybe more, you know, my math tells me that's over 200 papers that he was able to read and apparently digest and apparently use as a basis for one-on-one -on -one relationships with, uh, with his faculty. That's a, that's a very practical uh, solution that took a lot of work, uh, a lot of perspiration. I think the same was true for the impact investing idea, that was um, it was a it was a simple solution to a very complicated uh, problem. You know, and of course, the other thing that you couldn't help but be impressed by in that last conversation was uh, the sheer span of control that he as a team deals with that so many of us don't. In in the risk dimensions. I was at INSEAD a couple of years ago, and uh, INSEAD has a similar structure outside of Paris. They are a standalone institution. The building and grounds people report prevention to the dean. They, you know, INSEAD actually had a nurse on the staff. I mean, these are things that we just, so many of us don't think about that. And uh, it comes with benefits and it also comes with burdens. And it was just fascinating to hear him think about that. So I appreciate him sharing that with us. Yeah, it seems that he adapted very quickly to that more entrepreneurial uh, perspective of being able to fail quickly. I mean, celebrate your successes, but also fail quickly, uh, which is 
you know, sometimes different than you see in the academy where things fail or um, or slow over longer periods of time. Good point. Well, what a great interview, Ken. Thanks for joining me on this one. Good. Yeah, thank you. Good. Really, really great, uh, great discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.